0: Today's episode is brought to you by Novel Gazing, the newest literary fiction podcast from Book Riot, North America's largest independent book site. Novel Gazing is your destination for all things literary fiction, bringing you news from the world of fiction and recommendations for under-the-radar reads, works in translation, buzzy books, and more. Stay in the know, expand your TBR, and your view of literary fiction and of course, have some laughs with hosts Mary Kay McBrayer and Louise Johnson. Subscribe to Novel Gazing wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is also brought to you by Jamelia Pereira Dalmeida's That Hair, an autobiographically inspired tragicomedy that interweaves memories of childhood and adolescence, family lore spanning four generations, and present-day reflections on the internal and external tensions of a European and African identity, says John Keane. In That Hair, Jamilia Pereira del Mehta's wryly ironic and slyly beautiful new novel, translated with grace and nuance by Eric M. B. Becker, the author offers us a quote-unquote philosophy of hair. She creates a compelling post-colonial feminist and critically raced poetics of the self and of being and becoming in contemporary Portugal and the West. That hair is available now from Tin House Books. Needless to say, a lot has changed since I last sat in the studio with Jenny Ophel to talk about writing about the end times, writing about living at the precipice of irrevocable change and possible disaster. Like half the U.S. population I'm sheltering at home, like some 2.5 billion people around the globe, I'm restricting my movements to help flatten the curve. As you might imagine, given that all of our lives are unimaginably different from just weeks ago, things have changed also for the show. Book tours have stopped. Powell's Bookstore in Portland has closed its brick-and-mortar stores and laid off 85% of its staff, and the radio station where I record and edit these conversations is on lockdown. As I've shared already in my newsletter to supporters of Between the Covers, I'm more than a bit of a technophobe, and only now that I don't have a recording studio with its familiar hardware and software do I realize how daunting it is to figure out how to create a home recording studio on the fly in a home that doesn't really have a space for it will you become intimate with my neighbor's leaf blower with my forced air heating system with my cat ewok probably will i figure out how to use new editing software what the difference is between one microphone and the next and a million other things i hope so But I ask for your patience as I puzzle this all out and learn in real time in front of you. Mainly, though, I want to thank some people who are making all of this a lot easier. Today's episode, A Conversation with the Extraordinary Mark Haber, is the last in-person episode for who knows how long. It was recorded back in February, around the same time as my conversations with Lance Olson and Jenny Ophel, back when we lived in a different world than now. Today, to record this intro, while I'm still puzzling out what to buy in terms of long-term recording gear, I'm borrowing a microphone from a former guest, writer Peter Rock. He left this for me outside, in a box, in front of his house to pick up. He waved to me from inside his house and assured me half-jokingly that he packed the microphone into the box with his elbows and not his hands do check out my conversation with Peter in the archives about his book of image text called Spells. And also his other books, including his latest, The Night Swimmers, which is a finalist for the Oregon Book Award in fiction. And if you're looking for movie recommendations while under quarantine, his book, My Abandonment, a fiction based on a true story of a father who raised his daughter inside the wilds of Forest Park here in Portland, Oregon, was adapted into an incredible film called Leave No Trace. There are a lot of other people to thank. The podcasters Mike Sakasagawa, who hosts LifeWise Fiction and Keep the Channel Open, Courtney Ballastier, who hosts the WMFA podcast, Rachel Zucker, host of Commonplace, Brad Listy, host of Other People with Brad Listy; and John Richardson, the host of the Portland Art Museum podcast, who have fielded my seemingly endless questions about microphones and preamps and laptop fan noise and cables and all the many other things that would normally make me want to hide under the covers if it weren't for how necessary me puzzling these things out has become. I've provided links to all of their shows in my email to supporters as all of a sudden podcasting discussions of art and literature and life of conversation and personal connection delivered to us remotely is more important than ever. So I hope you will check out their shows and spread the word about them. This question of support and supporting each other is at the forefront of my mind these days. The writer Jesse Ball years ago changed the trajectory of this show when he sent me out of the blue boxes of his out of print collector's item of a book to use as gifts for people who supported Between the Covers. And I think similarly about the people at Tin House who helped make this show run smoothly. I'm not an employee of Tin House. I'm not on salary. But there's a team of people there who already had plenty to do in their current jobs as Tin House staff before the podcast became affiliated with Tin House. And they're all doing way more now without getting more to keep the podcast running. So I want to thank them by name at the end of this program and in episodes going forward. Other than the interviews going remote, I'm hoping that things will continue as usual with the two long-form conversations each month. There's even the possibility that there will be more of the Tin House Live episodes during the pandemic. I've been talking with Lance, the director of the workshop, about the possibility of ramping up the craft talks and readings while we're under quarantine. If this does happen, hopefully we will also use the intros to those talks as opportunities to highlight various ways to support writers and artists, to support bookstores and booksellers and the world of art making at large during this time. Speaking of which, today's guest, Mark Haber, is one of our more well-known booksellers at Brazos Books in Houston, Texas. So if you enjoy today's conversation with Mark consider buying his book or some of the books he recommends during this conversation from Brazos at brazosbookstore.com. I know that as of late March, Brazos was not accepting online orders, but that they were aiming to by early April. So check them out at brazosbookstore.com. And if they aren't yet accepting orders, I'd suggest looking at another bookstore Recently started by a past guest of the show and amazing writer, Kelly Link, with her partner Gavin, called Bookmoon Books. Bookmoon Books is taking online orders and I'm sure would appreciate your business. Mark Haber adds a reading of a work in progress for the bonus audio archive. If you want to learn more about how to subscribe to the bonus audio, see the various options of gifts you can get from Tin House, from back copies of Tin House Magazine, to the featured Tin House new release, to becoming an early reader, receiving 12 copies of Tin House books months before they're available to the general public, or maybe you simply want to receive the supporter email that goes out with each episode, you can find out more about how to support Between the Covers at patreon.com slash between the covers, or at tinhouse.com support. Enjoy today's program with Mark Haber.
1: Is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin.
0: Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer Mark Haber. Haber is the operations manager and a bookseller at Brazos Bookstore in Houston, Texas, and really one of the great literary tastemakers of our time guiding writers, editors, readers, and critics to some of the most incredible and often underappreciated writing happening today, writing that is often coming to us in translation from other languages and other cultures. He's the author of the 2008 short story collection, Deathbed Conversions, that was subsequently translated into Spanish and published in a bilingual edition in 2017 as Melville's Beard by Editorial Argonautica. His literary criticism of Cesar Aira, Enrique Villamata, Andres Barba, Guadalupe Natal, and many others can be found in many publications from LitHub, Music and Literature, and The Rumpus to the Brazos Bookstore website itself. He has served both as a juror for the National Endowment of Arts Translations Grants and as a judge for the Best Translated Book Award. Mark Haber is here today on Between the Covers to talk about his debut novel, Reinhardt's Garden, out from Coffeehouse Press, and long-listed for this year's Penn-Hemingway Award. Kirkus Reviews says of Reinhardt's garden, with a philosophical bent and nary a paragraph break, the novel evokes Gertrude Stein, contemporary European and South American writers like Matias Enar, Roberto Bolaño, and Cesar Aira, with the quixotic atmosphere of Werner Herzog films like Fitzcarraldo, The story is rich with stem winders on the intersection of melancholy with lust, religion, debauchery, and more. In form and language, his story entertainingly evokes the mood it's chasing, interior, mercurial, implacable. Carlos Fonseca adds, Reinhardt's garden simultaneously recalls the great tradition of 19th century European travelers like Alexander von Humboldt Aimé Bonplan, and Charles Darwin, as well as the critical Latin American rewritings of seminal expeditions. The echoes of César Aira's An Episode in the Life of a Landscape Painter, Juan José Sayers' The Witness, or even Benedetto Zama, resound with such strength that at times we can imagine Haber to be a Latin American writer. This subtle yet brilliant act of mimicry is perhaps the author's intention all along, to take his character's obsession to the threshold where their fantasies confuse themselves with reality, to the limit at the end of the journey where Europe finds itself confronted in the middle of the Guauguaychu forest, not by the dreamed Eden it had envisioned, but the reflection of its discontents. Revising Goya, one dares to think out loud, the dreams of reason do produce monsters, but it is always better to face them through the lens of philosophical humor. Welcome to Between the Covers, Mark Haber.
1: Delighted to be here, David. Thank you so much. And thank you for that amazing introduction. <laughs> I'm like, who is this guy yeah. you're talking about? Well,
0: well I, I particularly love the Carlos Fonseca uh, description of your book.
1: That was probably the favorite thing I'd read about my book so far, I think. I, yeah, he really nailed it, I think.
0: Yeah, and the intersection and the interaction of Europe and Latin America is sort of the nexus of your influences, but also the inter- intersection and nexus of the the plot and the characters in the book. And I agree that the book to me reads very much like that of a certain strain of Latin American writer, but rather than calling it an act of mimicry, I, I'm, I might call it instead a love letter to literature, Sure. Um, particularly your own literary loves and influences. And I think of something you said in your review of a book by Enrique Villamatas that made me think of you, even though you said it. <laughs> um, Villamatas belongs to that clan who believe literature is in constant conversation with itself. He is a quote-unquote literary writer in that he is absorbed with literature. Writers and writing are the major preoccupations of his work. So I was hoping we could start here. Absolutely. Um, Not with the story, but with, with how those writers you love have influenced the book, whether that be its form and length or the type of sentences and its syntax.
1: Absolutely. Um, th- this book would not exist without translated literature. It just wouldn't. Um, I'd, I'd be a writer. It's, it's. I've wanted to be a writer since I was 17, but it would probably be some kind of, I don't know, diluted uh, attempt at like Saul Bellow or something, yeah. um, Who who is an influence, I think, as far as the mix of high and low culture that I try and do in my writing. But um, y- yeah, it's one of these things where I think any art you steal, you steal what you love and then uh, you, you make it your own, that kind of cliché. Basically, the shape and the size of the sty- uh, of the book itself is definitely influenced by Ira, those tiny books that are compact, but so much happens in them. And, of course, very influenced by Thomas Bernhardt, a European writer, an Austrian writer. Um, and I didn't mention or I haven't since the books come out, um, and I'm glad you brought that up, is Villa Mata's. I always forget what an influence he is. And for him, it would be the playfulness, the kind of really literary, thoughtful playfulness. Hmm. And when I say literary, it's not kind of in a a snobby way. It's meant to invoke that sense of a love of literature and books and in books being in dialogue with each other. And I wanted um, if someone to read my book and say, oh, I I see you've read Bernhardt or I see you like Bolaño and all that. That's the biggest compliment in the world. You know,
0: it is. Well, I wasn't going to go here, but that you mentioned Saul Bellow, I loved in one interview you talked about how. Bellow, you consider a foreign writer in some regards, because because he's one of the few people that you name who's an American writer as an influence. So tell tell us why... Bellow is also not an American writer. Okay, sure.
1: So, um, if, if just a little bit about his life is that you know he came from Russian immigrants. His his parents spoke Russian and Yiddish in their household, and, and initially they moved to Canada. And I think when he was about seven or eight, if I'm correct, they moved to Chicago. So he grew up in a household that spoke Russian and Yiddish, and that's not just a language, but a sensibility. It's a sense of humor. It's the way of looking at things. Um, in a current example, Larry David's sensibility is very, very Jewish. It just is. I'm, um, I was raised Jewish, but it, it just in a cultural way. I see that. I, I can see Larry David. I can read Saul Bellow, and I never met them, but I'm like, I know these people. I know there's a sense of, uh, of kind of uh, cynicism, of of laughing at oneself, um, you know, self estrangement from oneself in a sense, and so that definitely is is an influence. And Saul Bellow doesn't strike me. Even though his books take place in the Berkshires in New York and Chicago, I mean he is a very American writer, and at the same time he 's not mm-hmm. yeah, I think the two kind of coexist
0: yeah to to return to Ira and the shortness of the book yes, um, I love that Ira writes books that are what eighty to one hundred and twenty pages me too and that they 're called novels they 're not yeah. called um, long short stories or novellas, yes, and we see that also with Bolaño, with Distant Star um, by Night in Chile. We see that with Christina Rivera Garza. Yes. Most of her books. We see see that with Yuri Herrera. We even see it with some British writers like Max Porter, but we don't see that happening in the United States no. or very rarely in the very United rarely. States. And I guess I was curious as a bookseller, yeah. maybe you have some thoughts on that. Why? Why is this novel length, which we we completely resist calling a novel and we diminish it in the United States. If if a length comes out like that, unless it comes from somewhere else. Right. Um, Why doesn't that exist as a form when so many beloved people are actually writing in it.
1: Yeah. I think part of it, and, and I could be wrong because I don't have an MFA, but I, I believe it's part of this um, MFA that, that says the book should be this length. It should have this look. Um, when you walk right into Brazos, the first thing you see is the the display of new hardcover fiction. And that's not going to have a lot of books uh, like Christina Rivera Garza uh, who or Yuri Herrera. These books come out in paperback. They're paperback originals. So that right there. Uh, in a in a customer's sense, is all already diminished. And I think that the, the MFA programs – the impression I get is that the, there's a certain way that you do think. There's this box you stay in. The, the, the book should be uh, between 270 to 350 pages unless you're writing the, the big American novel. And so I think people get in these mind frames. I have good friends that graduated with MFAs and they're writers and they're, they tell me, Mark, I wish – I'm still trying to unlearn
0: the things that I learned in my MFA, in my, MFA, yeah, in my I master's. I always uh- – presumed it was capitalism that it was like because (laughs) i think that's part of it too i mean how many books that actually come out that are between 250 and 300 pages like it's yeah it's weird yeah Uh, the large and people what their money's
1: worth i think you're correct that's part of it
0: yeah yeah so so another noteworthy thing of your book that has a literary pedigree is that this novel is all in one paragraph. Yes. So we have, there's no place to stop. No. Um, there's the beginning, and then <laughs> we we get kicked out at the end. Yes. So that has a long and um, storied uh, literary pedigree, which is also uncommon in the United States. Yes. So maybe you could just touch on who among those people who have written in this form uh, come to mind of course. for you. Yes. So – I had like two rules when I set out to write this book, and
1: this is kind of a long way of answering your question, is that I wanted it to be uh, an unbroken paragraph. Maybe that's just the one rule I had. Um, I had just finished reading um, Laszlo kastner short double book uh, kind of novellas um, or a pair of stories called The Last Wolf and Herman. I have actually to this day still not read Herman, but I read The Last Wolf, and that's actually a single sentence, and I knew I wanted the book – those were the two rules. I wanted the book to take place in a jungle, and I wanted – it to be an unbroken paragraph. That's in a way not really the challenge I set my, for myself. It was just an aesthetic choice that I wanted to do. And this goes back to the, the of course, tradition of um, probably the best known is Thomas Bernhard, whose novels are almost all just these, these diatribes, these monologues that are unbroken paragraphs. And um, it's a stylistic choice, and it's a choice of wanting the voice to kind of be the main character in a story. And I love voice-driven um, fiction. I love where the voice is its own character. And um, so influenced by that, a huge influence was By Night in Chile by Bolaño. I've had that book on my nightstand for probably 10 years and I always pick it up every couple of years and reread it Um, because I I learned from reading that uh, By Night in Chile and The Last Wolf how much you can do in a very dense but small space. And I I taught myself while I was writing Reinhardt's Garden that by kind of setting myself those boundaries, I actually liberated myself and I was able to go anywhere I wanted – by not leaving the margins of of the page, so to speak.
0: One of the ways I would characterize the way you really make this distinctively Mark Haber. Yeah. Is that while I open the book and I'm immediately in this very strong voice. Yeah. Like when we when we're with Thomas Bernhard, we're we're in a very distinctive consciousness. Yes. But with Bernhard, who's also funny, yes. um, there's also a sense of maybe sometimes Gasping for air because you're trapped in a consciousness, right? And it's very, um, recursive and interior and, um, and, and hilarious, absolutely, but at the same time, also, um, hermetic. Yes. And your book feels very much somehow to be a voice driven book that hurdles its way forward, that has a lot of outward facing, worldly, eventful things happening, yes. So there is even though it's all coming through consciousness we're not in like a traditional scene it feels to me like we are also being told uh a Globe trotting story at the same time.
1: Yes, I, I and i you you nailed it, David. Is that the two differences between this? So the Bernhard influence is unmistakable. I wear it proudly. Is I wanted the book to be, and this is just my personality. It's, it's is I it I think it's sillier than Bernhard. Um, Bernhard is hilarious, but it's also kind of this this almost this gallows humor. You're like you're almost like laughing from the void. Um, and I wanted there to be exterior action. So, in in Bernhard's books, it's all in in the mind, really. And if things happen, they're mostly very, very um, psychological. And in my book, it's still voice driven. It's very interior, but there's things are happening. People are being chased. There's there's jungle. There's Russia. Um, there's there's action.
0: So let's let's orient people to the story of Reinhardt's Garden. Since sure. we are in both uh, Croatia, Russia, and in South America. Um, what is the story and circumstance? What's your elevator pitch for, yeah. for <laughs> Reinhardt's Garden? My elevator pitch, which does not do it justice, you know, because they say keep it short. It was, uh, oh, it's a
1: comedy about melancholy, yeah. uh, which it is, but it's many other things, I think. So it's 1907, and you're following um, really three, but essentially two Croatian um, men and um, some people they've they've picked up along the way in South America, looking for this lost. Um, Philosopher uh, today he might have been called a self-help writer. Um, you don't know whether he wrote about you know melancholy or happiness. You're just not really sure. But they're looking for him because um, not the narrator but the protagonist, Jacob, is obsessed with melancholy, um, and so he's looking for this man who wrote all of these fantastic books he believes on melancholy. So the book opens in 1907. That's the present time. They're in the jungle, and then there's many many flashbacks um, to their time in Europe. Which brought them to to the jungle uh, and being threatened by local tribes and madness and
0: starvation and all those those hijinks. And the narrator is Yaakov Reinhardt's yes, totem yes, his personal assistant yes. So sort of a, I mean, Sancho Panza or Max Broad to Kafka. Absolutely.
1: Um, oh, great. Yeah, that's the great uh, analogy or great comparison. Yeah, and so it's being told through a person who who may or may not be sick. He might be a bit of a, um, a neurotic. Uh, you know. Uh, he may be sick. You just don't know. And it's being told through his eyes, and he absolutely idolizes. Um, I've said Jacob. I've said Yakov. I've read three different ways. So I've written a novel, and so I don't do – How say it? I've, when I started the book tour, I looked it up, and um, I've heard that in Croatia you can pronounce it like Jacob but with the V. So then I said I would guess it's not Yakov. It's, it's Jacob. Um, I think Chad Post from Open Letter when he was talking about it on a podcast said Yakov.
0: So I don't think there's any wrong way. Okay. Let's say it all the ways. Okay. during the conversation
1: yeah okay we'll just we'll all the different it ways yeah Unless you have a
0: preference i have no preference okay <laughs> yeah
1: um but yeah but it's it, when i started the book it was it, the the first two pages are really how you read it. it it really didn't change anything um and i said oh i'll have this minor character he'll he'll come up as a recurring joke and he's gonna write a treatise on melancholy and every few pages i'll go to him and kind of refer to him there he is scribbling in his journal when there all these bad things are happening but i mean by the second day i was like oh He's he's the one to pay attention to. He's the
0: one that has something going on there. And there's this weird issue of following because we have this character who's telling the story who is following Yaakov or Jakov or, or Jacob. yeah. <laughs> Jacob. Right. Jacob um, because he believes he's a genius. He believes Reinhardt's a genius who is in the progress of writing this treatise of melancholy that our narrator has never actually seen. Yeah. But uh, Reinhardt is also following the person who wrote the greatest work of melancholy, sort of the El Dorado or the Fountain of Youth quest that they go on in South America is to try to discover this disappeared writer. So we have our narrator following a a possible genius following an established genius of melancholy. But I think one of the the ways in which, I know comedy is hard to talk about and how to write comically, but I think one of the places you really exploit comedy in this book is the difference between the way the narrator feels about Reinhardt and Uh the way the reader feels about Reinhardt. Would you say that's true?
1: I would say that's very true. And what's great is like when you write a book and then people say things, you are like, oh, I guess you're right. Like someone said, oh, the book kind of, you know, explores colonialism. I'm like, you're right, it does. So what you're saying is uh, absolutely true, and I haven't looked at that. But yeah, I think the reader is going to have feelings or does have feelings about uh, about Yakov that um, are not seen through the eyes of the storyteller. I mean, he absolutely idolizes him, and really, Jakov can do no wrong.
0: Yeah. I wanted to follow up on that a little, because in, yeah. in your collection of stories, Deathbed Conversions, later called Melville's Beard or La Barba de, de Melville, de Melville. <laughs> uh, we begin with a note to the reader where we learn the narrator has written these stories quote, under the observation of a doctor, Dr. Heinrich Audubon, (laughs) and that this observation is happening because the narrator has suffered a, quote, unquote, mental malady. And many of the stories that follow have characters who are obsessed or have a compulsion or who are manic. And you could definitely say this is true of Reinhardt, of Jakob Reinhardt, that he's obsessed, Mm -hmm. possibly manic. Um, So I guess I wanted to hear about what attracts you to this type of person as character, and maybe as a writer, what it affords you, what allows you to explore by choosing uh, characters who are both under observation and whose um, mental capacity is under question.
1: Absolutely. So I think uh, writers find themes or themes find them and they find things that just uh, – it's just kind of their obsessions. They're, they're, they're almost um, unconscious. And, and I love the idea of um, time periods like Kafka and sanitariums and I love this idea of, of extreme obsessed um, you know characters that are maybe a little bit maniacal i can 't really do subtlety. I wish I could. I see writers that do very quiet writing and i' I'm, uh, what appeals to me and what I think my strength is is writing characters that are that are on the high end they're they 're very obsessed they 're very driven, and the reader usually is kind of in the back seat going, Wow, this person is is not you know. I think Saul Bellow called them high IQ morons. You know, I love people who um, are really, really smart and intelligent, um, but their their entire obsession is almost like an act of self sabotage, where what they're doing is to the detriment of themselves and obviously in Reinhardt's Garden, everyone around them. Um, and of course, you can look at uh, you know current situations where people have blind faith in someone, and it's not good for anyone. We can leave it at that, but. Um, those characters interest me; they really do. I like I like the extreme, and and when you go into that world, you find a lot of ways to uh, explore comedy.
0: You yeah. know. Well, let's hear a little bit of the prose.
1: Sure, it's about. Uh... A little bit past halfway in the book and this is when um, – and the reader knows very early on that uh, that Jacob has, uh, has a, a love for cocaine and this is kind of a bit of the story of uh, how this happened. He was going through what in the book is called his gray period, which is depression or, or something different than melancholy. But um, OK, so I'll just begin. This was also around the time Jacob received his first prescription for cocaine in an attempt, said Dr. Schmidt, to balance Jakov's moods and, we hoped, alleviate the curtain that had fallen across the stage of my master's mind. And Jakov's renewed exuberance for his masterwork, as well as his discovery of Ivan Ilyich, coincided with his use of cocaine, what he called a miracle drug. Cocaine is a miracle drug, Jakov insisted, a conduit to the gods. Cocaine had once again made me see the full breadth of my life's work. Cocaine has caused melancholy to flower inside me like a field of vital vice but a melancholy more sumptuous and impregnable and cosmic than any I've known. And as he raved, I would sit or stand, enraptured by his moods, by the emphatic belief in his own sublime ability. And I can't recall if the cocaine came before Ivan Ilyich or if Ivan Ilyich came before the cocaine, Though cocaine assisting in a deeper reading into Ivan Ilyich or the reading of Ivan Ilyich, somehow encouraging him to ingest more cane. For both had profound influences on one another, but the two were conflated. So Jacob's use of cocaine in his reading of Ivan Ilyich appeared as a single act conjured by destiny. In his sermons range from the high to the middle to the low, infinite spiels replete with menace and spleen and rancor, now peppered by frequent and subsequent breaks for cocaine. So afterward, he could continue with ever more expansive spiels of menace and spleen and rancor. His diatribes concerning Klein and the Kleinians especially, these took on an imminent aspect of horror and madness, accusations and suspicions, and plots of pure conjecture spewing uncontrollably and reeking of paranoia, yet with the slightest hint of truth, since I hadn't met Klein but had, of course, met my master, and presumably I knew my master's soul, was intimate with my master's soul, and furthermore trusted my master's soul, and as such Wasn't bothered much by the consumption of cocaine because if Jacob claimed they were all brutes and bastards and intellectual derelicts, then by all accounts they were. And who was I to say any different? Mornings I would pace the hall outside to study, keen to begin dictation and once again fill the notebooks of his ever-growing library or perhaps finally put some order to the assemblage of shelves packed with the studies he dictated to me. Thousands of the most beautiful thoughts and aphorisms and philosophies on that most somber of human emotions. As Wagner resounded like the boots of an approaching army, I waited in the hall with its ludicrous incline and haphazard angles, all the worse for being in intentional the new castle the second stuttgart castle preposterous even in its unfinished state and once since the muddle of jacob's radiant mind reflected in the pitched interiors in the halls that slowly narrowed and the landing seen but forever out of reach in the corners that caught and twisted more ankles than i cared to count yet his mind and my love for his mind superseded any concerns for architecture for what are the crude elements of the earth when placed beside the infinite My desire for traditional dictation, however, was quickly hindered by Jacob's cocaine-addled thoughts, his desire to swim in the replicated pond or hire mediums to speak with his sister or perhaps take a moonlit stroll around Stuttgart estate or even perhaps further into town towards the Schatzplatz or the beer garden or the Bruno Heinzel Tavern where the socialist Democrats ensconced among the benches spent their days drinking foamy beer and arguing because Jacob enjoyed nothing more than mocking the locals, the bourgeois and the proletariat both. Since he belonged to neither, insisted he was simply an artist and a psychologist and a scientist combined. Thus, the bourgeois and the proletariat were alien beings to him, simply herds of humans with fixed labels, not unlike the Kleinians or the Eurofuturists or the Marxists, the Marxists especially, who lately huddled among the coffee houses of the Schatzplatz to argue and stomp their feet. Jacob's eyes trembled, wet from the cold, tears swam down both cheeks, for he forbade the use of a coat or even my bringing a coat, for the chilly insisted did him good, the same harsh chill that invigorated Jacob as he performed his Buddhist meditations in the study with the windows open and wearing not a stitch of clothing save his favorite smock. Indeed, something inside Jacob had loosened, maybe good, maybe bad, and if he had been ambitious before, he was more ambitious now, but it was a reckless ambition that skirted the abyss and made me frightened for our future." Having copied the death of Ivan Ilyich Longhand three or four times, Jacob instructed me to buy all the copies available in Stuttgart, every translation, German, Polish, the original Russian, and while I was at it, I should stop by Dr. Schmitz to pick up another prescription of cocaine. For one shouldn't delve into one's most brilliant work, only to come up short, to see the horizon, for example, to espy one's triumphs, for example, to grasp the mantle, for example, only to stumble in the final stretch. At length, he concluded what I should have seen coming, he must visit Tolstoy himself, and I, of course, would accompany him, and perhaps he would pray with Tolstoy, and share ideas with Tolstoy, and ultimately find communion with Tolstoy. For Tolstoy was a kindred spirit who was able to communicate the vagaries of melancholy through the lesser art of fiction. Even though I detest fiction, he said, even though I loathe to read fiction, he said, even though fiction has grown adults playing make-believe and dress-up, he said, Tolstoy has captured the modern state of melancholia. The death of Ivan Ilyich was placed in my hands for a reason, he stated, and as soon as he learned that Tolstoy had abandoned literature for a spiritual calling, it was like Tolstoy's estate, Yasnaya Polyana had been waiting for him all along. For his abandonment of literature was proof, Jacob attested, of the telepathic connection the two of them
0: shared. We've been listening to Mark Haber read from Reinhardt's Garten. One book we could add to the list of short books is The Death of Ivan Ilyich. yes.
1: And that was a nod to kind of the novella, to the short book. Um, that I mean, it's obviously a celebrated story; it's, it's world renowned. Um, but it's it's kind of forgotten with the big ones, you know, Anna Karenina and of course War and Peace. So that was kind of a, an intentional. Some things when you write a book and you realize, oh, that was just that just happened. That was the the magic of of, of literature. Um, but that was intentional. Was putting a little book in there.
0: Yeah. You know. Well, one of the things that I do love, which you also do in this section you just read, is blurring the fictional and the nonfictional in a way that. Is hard to parse as a reader. Yeah, um, you play it straight. Yes. So um, Yaakov, he he's going to go off to visit Tolstoy. Yes. And you also mention Yaakov's nemesis, the psychologist Otto Klein. Yes. And because you render these fictional historical characters in the same register as the real ones. Yes. I found myself with notes as I was reading Reinhardt's Garden. I had a note to myself: research Otto Klein. <laughs> who later of course <laughs> i learned <laughs> i learned is really invented but he also shares you know i th- i thought of otto rank who was the psychologist for henry miller and anes nin ah who so you have these names that have like these these resonances yes but then also made me wonder even though we're visiting tolstoy who's real right. was the plague of wild dogs that they encounter there, which seemed like it might have been a significant event in Tolstoy's right. life as it was destroying his estate. <laughs> was that true? Right. Uh, but I guess I, I want to hear more about um, about the, doing this. just sure. As a general phenomenon. Yeah. And then also if there are um, our predecessors that – come to mind because some come to mind for me and i'd just yeah. be curious what came to mind for you
1: yeah okay so uh as far as mixing the real and the fictional is something I, I love to do and it's not um it's not meant to try and fool the reader or make people go down these rabbit holes looking up for things but it's it's part of the the fabric or the tapestry of the story i'm trying to tell where i want these things that seem like almost beyond believable to be kind of mixed in with uh things that actually did happen or people that existed um so of course all these wild uh the surfs mutts that are running rampant on tolstoy's estate was invented and when I was writing the book, that that was something that when I wrote, I actually was laughing out loud. Like, okay, I, I lo- like. Looking at the book, that's probably the part that tickles me most is this man trying to trap wild dogs on, on Tolstoy's estate just is – to me, it's so absurd. Um, but back to that, I, I do try and mix the real and the fictional and I did that uh, in my short stories and uh, the new novel I have I've coming out in a, a year or two from Coffee House also mixes that. So it's a style that – I guess it's a style um, but it's it's definitely a, a choice I do because um, I like mixing um, the real and the fictional to kind of just create a tapestry and – and to uh, so it can maybe give nods or, or, or um, maybe like kind of finger pointing signs to the reader that you know he's not Nietzsche but he's kind of Nietzsche like or he's not this person and he's not Kierkegaard but he's kind of in that realm. So it, I kind of incorporate it, or I compare it to painting where I I want to use my own colors but I'm going to use a little bit of red or blue. So you go okay that was that was Prague in the 30s or this was that to give it some historical context even if it's fictional.
0: Mm-hmm. And are there are there Books that you love that do this. I know there must be, and I'm tr- I'm really when you mentioned that I was kind
1: yeah. of going blank. Like I know, I mean, it's not something I invented. I'm trying. I well, know there's... I'll mention a couple please, that I thought. Please. Of.
0: They're not like your book okay. in any way other than in this way. But I thought of Kafka's America. Oh yes, which really. It's wrong in every factual way. Sure. Geographically, everything about it is wrong, but it is all right. And it's like it's telling us about Kafka's imagination of America. Yes. And the way he imagines America tells us a lot about America. Yes. Even though it's all not true. Right. It's true in a deeper way. Yes. In a weird way. But then I also think of Bolaño's Nazi literature.
1: That, as you were talking, that's the one that's a big influence on me. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the one where – and his tone in that is so flat and so measured that you're like these people must exist. And of course they don't. But right. you know, obviously the subject matter is much, much more serious and, 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 and dark. Um, but yeah, that, that was – that is an influence.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, huh. um, yeah so Nazi li- – I'll, I'll say the whole title. So L- Nazi literature in the Americas for, yes. for those who didn't hear me. So in light of the imagined and the historical being narratively intertwined, yeah, I think of some of the things you've said about research, namely that you see reading literature as the main research rather than research. Yes. So I, I'm wanting you to talk a little bit more. You mentioned a little bit about that with the, the idea of being like a painter. Yeah. So you're writing a novel in 1907. Yes. It takes place in places you've never been. Sure. Um. So- to imagine you're relying on literature as the way to render the book. Yeah. Um, both the the time and the settings, mm-hmm. very varied settings. We're in Croatia, we're in Russia, we're right. in Uruguay. Um, talk to us about that.
1: Yeah. So, what's important to me um, is I, I definitely want to do research. This takes place in in a world that's real. It's 1907. Um, however, you know, I was asked uh, many times when since the books come out, have you been to these places? Have I been to Croatia? Have I? And I haven't been to anywhere where this book takes place um, because. I'm writing about Uruguay and I'm writing about Croatia, but I'm writing about um, the ones that don't exist. I'm writing about – if I if, had if gone and researched Croatia and done these things and written and, and down the names of streets and the names of plants, um, that's great and that's fine. But I'm trying to invent that third place. So there's the imagined Croatia, the real Croatia, and then the one that kind of combines those two. So I might have a landmark that's real. But I'm using my imagination. So it's kind of this – you know, like all fiction, it's a leap of faith and you're kind of going in knowing that it's um, – it's, um, it, there's the pretense. There's the idea that what you're reading is not real and, and I kind of prefer that. Um, I don't want – I think it was Daniel Alacrón who uh, – a lot of his books take place in Peru. He's, he was raised in Alabama but he's from Peruvian descent and he says, I might name a street or two but I like to do things that are off the beaten path so that I'm, I've got the freedom to create whatever I want. You know, And I wanted that freedom to create the imagined Croatia, the Croatia that I see, that it's not meant to be authentic. It's meant to be um, a Croatia where – it is funny. When I wrote the book and then suddenly my wife was watching these tour shows and people are going to cruises in, in Croatia. And Croatia is gorgeous. And I've got this character, much like Bernhard, who curses this place and it's the worst and it's like I got to get out of here like you know, his relationship, Bernhardt's with Austria – um, and then you realize it's actually probably a, it's a very scenic, beautiful place. So uh, that made me happy. I'm like, well, I invented this place that really doesn't exist, that just happens to have the name Croatia. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it's really kind of just having that level of imagination.
0: Well, so, well, speaking of mimicking reality, tell us about the main influence on your work, the Swiss-Colombian Jewish writer <laughs> Mila Menendez Kraus. Yes. Who's – you wrote the essay, The Writer You've Never Heard Of That Made My Book Possible. Yes. And – tell us you tell us not only all the improbable ways in which krauss the little known krauss's um, life and work has influenced people we do know yes but how difficult it is to find her work so talk to us about Krauss yes, and um, so Krauss, and that essay,
1: yes, so Krauss is definitely uh, my biggest influence, and in that that essay was very, very influenced by Nazi literature in the Americas. And um, that I try and use a tone that's that's very flat, and also like Reinhardt's garden. I'm taking from Europe, and I'm taking from South America, and I'm mixing those two because there's this beautiful uh, kind of tradition of writers that uh, left Europe and grew up in in South America. I mean, Clarice Lispector, who you know is considered a Brazilian writer, wrote in Portuguese, but. Was Jewish, born in Ukraine, and then of course grew up in Brazilian, and I think always saw herself as a Brazilian, um, and uh, and many other writers. I know Sergio Chekvek is a, is an Argentine writer that lives in New York, but uh, you know, but he's he's a, a Jewish writer, you know, from the the child of Jewish immigrants. So what I love is. Um, it's weird it's hard to it's almost i do think of writing a lot as painting In that i i want to embroider something i want it rich so i love mixing fictional titles i love the italics of a fictional title mixed in with text to me it's it's like beautiful it's fun to see and to have fun with titles and things that are, are fictional so she's this writer that in, in a sense i wish existed.
0: you yeah. know you wish she existed
1: exactly yeah. i wish i wish she did yes
0: yeah. yeah um one of the things that i really loved i loved how you charted kraus's so, if anyone's not clear, <laughs> Krauss does not exist.
1: When you started, and, I was going. I hope you know. <laughs> and I'm like, you have to know. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, Krauss doesn't exist. But, but H- Haber wrote a a essay as if he as if she did exist. But you do chart the influence on Nabokov's Pale Fire, which also yes. is hilarious because of that book being about authenticity and about yes. forgery. Yes. And her intersections with Juno Barnes and Miguel Unamuno. Yes. A writer that I wish more people spoke about. Um, but the thing that I really loved was Kraus was the first novelist to ever write in the fifth person entirely skipping the fourth a rare feat that hasn't been attempted nor replicated since The Savage Detectives was Bolaño's failed attempt in fact to write the fifth in the fifth person a subtle though much overlooked nod to kraus his failure of course is a victory for us readers yes that, yes that's so amazing
1: well thank you yeah and I, what i was trying to do because i'm not i'm not trying to go oh i pulled one fast on you i mean i want people to kind of go, you know read it going i don't know if this is real or not but i'm, I'm not malicious i'm not trying to make someone feel foolish um but it was uh, that that love of pale fire in, in uh, nazi literature in the americas and um and, and mixing those two together to make something kind of wholly new in yeah. a
0: way. Yeah. Well, tell us tell us about 1907. Why did you want to set the book in 1907? Was there Absol- some was there an appeal or a mood or something about your imagination of 1907 that yeah. it's like I'm going to set it then rather than 1957? Sure. Or 1857.
1: Absolutely. So this is one of those rare times when reality actually did dictate my book. I wanted the book initially to take place early. I wanted to be kind of in the mid 1800s. But Tolstoy's life—he dies in 1910. It's got to be kind of an older Tolstoy when he, in real life, had these kind of pilgrims come up and visit him, and he became a very much, you know, kind of a, a very religious figure, you know, a pacifist and and uh, a vegetarian and, and all of these things, and he was a hypocrite at the same time, I guess. But um, because of Tolstoy's life, I needed it to take place. In 1907, so I wrote it with the idea that it's going to be earlier, and then real life actually dictated, okay, it's got to be 1907. And when I realized, okay, that's about going to be the date, it's a later Tolstoy. Uh, then a lot of the things that the book kind of happened followed that. that whether it was the intellectual, um, you know, trends that were happening, um, you know, people doing Kierkegaard or plays and and uh, and you know, Wagner and you know, things like that. It, it kind of just changed some of the tapestry of the book and what would be happening at that time. So that time definitely appealed to me, and I and I wasn't ever concerned. I never consider myself a historical writer, but Tolstoy's life dictated the year of the book.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So one of the reasons why I imagined you picked this time period was because of melancholy. Sure. Um, so I, was, I had this whole like narrative that I spun out, which may not actually be true, but you have, you have several epigraphs and one of them is from Robert Burton's The Anatomy of Melancholy that begins, a most incomparable delight it is so to melancholize and build castles in the air, which made me believe that you knew either on your own or through literature or through research that melancholy was once considered a disease. But I also thought about that time period because many actual diseases like syphilis and tuberculosis were considered to have psychological temperaments or miasms that could be passed down through families. So when when Yaakov or Yakov <laughs> meets our narrator for the first time, at a turn of the century sanatorium, and we learn that Yaakov is working on a treatise of melancholy, I couldn't help but think of Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain and how at that time period, there was a tubercular aesthetic, a tubercular temperament that was considered romantic. It was a disease of poets, and that you, you got tuberculosis from having sorrowful passions, and that tuberculosis would give you a refined physical charm or even a certain type of attractiveness. Um, so I was wondering whether this sort of strange little literary and medical pedigree, because melancholy also had a pedigree, yes, um, whether that. It- attracted you to it for this book versus someone writing a treatise on anger or on frustration?
1: Absolutely. So definitely, uh, I wanted the book to be in an earlier time period to kind of coincide with the study of the humors and uh, Robert Burton's book. I really did. So my initial instinct was it for it to be in that earlier time period. However, moving it up wasn't uh, wasn't a, b- a bad thing because, of course, uh, the humors were still talked about. Melancholy was still uh, very much an issue. Um, and of course, you can think of Kafka, who is kind of, um, um, I guess um, – around that time I mean he was he was he was young but um so th- that time period attracted me and I, I've never I don't know anyone who has read the anatomy of melancholy cover to cover I think it's a fun book to to dip into and to have and and I and I love it and I also love that you don't know if he's being funny or not you really don't know it's so scientific and yet you're like is this tr- real research um but that definitely appealed to me the the whole um kind of atmosphere around tuberculosis and it's almost like maybe it's the disease of 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 suffering artists and things like that and that very much appealed to me as far as also the 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 narrator of the story being very very and and jacob himself being very um kind of in love with their own emotions in a way and
0: being very you know they're very melodramatic hmm. yeah well, let's hear another little section sure. on melancholy itself
1: okay so uh, a part about melancholy this is early in the book a Hungarian is the next best melancholic after a Croatian, he would famously say, for we all know there is no one on earth next to a croat who understands or intuits or grasps melancholy more than Hungarian. Yet a Croatian remains superior since a croat contains melancholy not only in their hearts but in the very fiber of their being. Even at their happiest, most celebratory occasions, a croat will halt, slapped and muted by their melancholic nature, by the sudden reminder that all is futile. And living with a conscience constitutes a merciless barrier to happiness, which is, of course, the pervasive and unassailable wall of existence. And though Hungarian is very close to a Croatian, the Hungarian remains a notch or two lower. For I have seen, Jakov contended, perfectly miserable Hungarians lose themselves at baptisms and weddings, even celebrating the victories of their favorite football clubs, whichever preposterous club it may be. Yes, subtly forgetting themselves in the miserable lot that is life and genuinely enjoying themselves. And in the end, this is disqualifies them entirely. Bosnians are prudent melancholics, he offered. Practicing melancholics, he added. Responsible melancholics, he concluded, but not even close to the second-place Hungarian melancholic who, at twilight, when the diminutive light struck their brow at the most auspicious angle, one was one of the most beautiful visions Jacob had ever witnessed. A Jewish melancholy was a subject all its own, he stated, and something he refused to examine for a Jew's suffering was a schism, a crevasse, an endless riddle he would only consider navigating once his experiences had matured. A Russian was a downright brilliant melancholic, but was in love with his own melancholy so that it was sentimental and embarrassing for anyone to witness and became pure theater, practically a pantomime of real melancholy, since pure unmolested melancholy doesn't produce tears or exhibit theatrics and certainly doesn't make demands on another. Melancholy, he professed, is a hymn, a falling leaf, a frozen stream in the still-dead of winter. Melancholy is the song of the nightingale and the wordless harmony of a meadow, he said, now clutching his chest, these sentiments spoken in rapid and fervent German, which Alvaro certainly couldn't grasp, resembling the same words I'd heard on our first meeting when I met Jakoff eleven years earlier. I recalled his deep, resonant voice trembling across the upper deck of the Holstruff Sanitarium and Spa, where I'd been sequestered for a course of treatment for my lungs. The upper deck where so many came to bathe and delight in the warm August sun, suspended in the afternoon as if supplicated by the clusters of pale, plump tourists. I climbed the wooden stairs in search of that very sun, only to hear their Croatian accent so familiar to my ears, an accent lambasting all those pseudo-melancholies that crammed the spa, all those mealy melancholies, he barked, those counterfeit melancholies, he cried, swarming like fat eels. Tim, it was nauseating. I'm nauseating, he said. I'm nauseated, I'm sorry, he said observing you taking a cure, rippling in your bathing suits with no shame, with no sense of decency or respect for those around you. Bathing suits, he later said, that exposed the mediocrities they were. For how could a soul grapple with the melancholic nature while rubbing oils all over their overfed bodies? Bodies, he indicated, that contained melancholies far weaker and less notable than his duller too, and quite frankly, he said, less heroic and spiritual than his own distinguished sadness. Abhorrent melancholies, he shouted, heinous melancholies, he barked, egregious melancholies that sullied his truer and more virtuous melancholy, his holiest of all melancholies, downright ruining the authentic melancholy that had followed him since his pale, sorrowful youth in that cold pit of a home with harsh and unloving parents and a sickly sister, a twin no less, a faithful consort. The only one who fathomed the full dimensions of Jakov's soul, a twin he helped nourish as best he could until she expired, a nishin, a brilliance, a luster to his own melancholia as he spent the next five years devising ways to escape Canin, that horrible stain, that embarrassment to Croatia and all of Europe, an eternal black mark on his once immaculate soul, that even after he'd escaped all those years ago, not a morning went by where Jakov didn't awaken to feel he'd returned to the same place or rather that he'd never left."
0: been listening to Mark Haber read from his book, Reinhardt's Garden, from Coffeehouse Press. So I think Martin Riker is right when he suggests, at least for me, when he suggests this book is not about melancholy as much as it's about hubris. Yeah. Um, and I kind of wanted to talk about it. I want to hear whether you agree, but I also want to talk about hubris and relationship to gender in Reinhardt's Garden. Yes. Because it feels like it's something that the book is commenting on. Yeah. Uh, the reason I think that the book is self aware in this fashion is because the women in the book, Sonia, the Jewish retired prostitute, who is Yakov's lover and Elsa, the German translator, who are given very little airtime. They seem to be portrayed in a way that suggests that they have the most authentically intellectual and artistic inner lives, even as Sonia was a prostitute and is now a housekeeper. For Yaakov, she is, despite that, and despite not being heralded as such in the world, a very talented poet and translator. And because Yaakov is sort of the main target of the skewering in the book, not by the narrator, but he gets sent up um, for us to see the ridiculousness of him and his own uh, self-image. Uh, and by extension, the men who follow him seem lampooned in association with him. It sort of feels like Yaakov and our narrator and all these other people are manspreading and mansplaining the women to the margins of the story. But as, but whenever the women come through, it, there's a suggested dimensionality to them. Good. And also um, competence and uh, yeah. uh, talent in, and in a way that is, is never going to be recognized. Yes, yeah, I think everything
1: you said is is exactly right. I think Martin uh, Riker was correct. Um, when people asked why did you want to write a book about melancholy, and I said, well, I, it's not really about melancholy. And and I told, and Martin actually through an email when we were doing an interview, he kind of showed me what I was saying. I said, I don't think, um, I I don't think the book's obsessed with melancholy, or, or I don't think it's about melancholy. And he said, no, but. Jacob's obsession is melancholy. He said, that's exactly it. So I wrote a book where the main character's obsession is melancholy, not mine. I didn't set out to go, I'm going to write a book about melancholy. But it, it is meant to lampoon these, as, as I said earlier, these kind of high IQ morons. Um, and, and it is meant to be kind of lampoon on, on hubris and the belief – I'm a big believer in admitting not knowing things. I think there's nothing wrong with just going, I don't know. And um, I think it's a, definitely a trait of – traditionally of men who just claim to know everything or claim to know things that they don't really know. Um, and you've got a lot of men – male characters in this book who either claim they know things or are following a man who claims he knows things. And then you've got the women who in 1907 are in the background. Um, and I think, Sonia, I try to give her as much agency as you could give a female character, believably, in that time where um, – She kind of uh, is not scared to tell Jacob what she thinks um, and she's not scared to take on lovers. She's very, very much kind of in charge of, of her own life in as much as she can be. I know she kind of, you know, does collect the dust in in uh, his, the mansions of Jacob's. But but I tried to give her agency. And then, of course, she has this little place that she she kind of writes poetry and translates. And that was kind of a nod to uh, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One Own, where, you know, when they find her later in the book, they're like, why is her place so hard to find? Well, she's trying to get away from you guys. You know, of course, she wants to hide yeah. from the mansplaining. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, no, those are all very um, – I don't want to say super intentional, but but it, when it was done, that's exactly what I wanted it to be.
0: Exactly, yeah. yeah. Hubris, and, and I I wonder, like, so Jacob's uh, nemesis, Otto Klein, the fictional psycho yeah. analyst, um, who he used to follow. So yes. Jacob used to follow Otto Klein, and now he's like his enemy, right? Is that also a, a situation of hubris? Is that also um, him just simply being threatened by how much airtime Otto Klein has That's world.
1: exactly it. You, you nailed it. I, I, was, I was telling someone, I think of my event at Brazos when I did the book launch, that the way I see Jacob is that he's this failed uh, intellectual, this failed academic. The thing that he's got going for him is this money, this inheritance he has. And he's very, very jealous of Kleist because Kleist has is, is got the airtime. He's successful. And um, so he resents that. And I think that's 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 it. It's ego. It's it's hubris. It's all that stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's how I see Jakoff. Yeah. So so Jakoff transfers his love of of from his nemesis onto a writer named Emiliano Gomez Carrasquilla. Yes. And Carrasquilla is the lost philosopher of melancholy. Yeah. Who has disappeared into the jungles somewhere in South America. Yeah. And this El Dorado like search <laughs> for Emiliano seems. Kind of like the ultimate hubris, in a way, because Jacob is projecting his own dreams and imagination across the South American landscape. Yes is not interested in interacting with the culture or the place of South or with South Americans for right. that matter right as he goes on this quest for this possibly real, possibly mythical thing right, which right. of course, has a long and terrible uh, history to it. yes, And I think of also of Laura Calloway at the Literary Review when she says, it's difficult not to compare the novel's journey to Conrad's Heart of Darkness, a jungle expedition, a tale of obsession. The comparison would be apt had Joseph Heller created the character Kurtz, Franz Kafka narrated the journey into the <laughs> Congo, and Marlowe been a cocaine addict. But I guess what I find particularly interesting is the way you slip in these darker themes with really light touches like the book on its surface is comic. Sure. And people I'm sure pick that up from your readings. Yeah. And, but there's this subtextual undertone that I think is pretty dark and yet quiet. And I, I wanted to hear about that. I'm sure you're saying a lot of these things are not coming intention. Like you're not sitting down, like I'm going to write it comic and I'm going to slide, slide in 5% dark. Sure. But, um, yeah, just maybe you could talk a little bit about how that strikes you when Laura Calloway makes that comparison, yeah, and, and I think
1: it's i mean you know when anyone invokes these greats I'm, it's it's nothing but flattering and uh, and of course they're they're big influence uh, influences so it's it's weird I, I want the book to have the hijinks. I want it to have that silliness, but I also want it to be um. Taken seriously, and I think by taking it seriously and, and being about serious things, I wanted to have a little bit of um, of kind of philosophy mixed in. I love the idea that someone who's a maniac, um, Jacob, for example, says things and the reader knows, oh, this guy's a, a maniac. He's obsessed. He's, 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 he's insane. Yet – 20% of what he says is, well, there's some truth in that though. So I like when people – because that happens in real life. I mean there's people that say crazy things or that are crazy, but they say things that there's uh, kernels of truth. And so I wanted there to be a little bit of um, a philosophy of things maybe I believe in, of sadness, of maybe even Jacob's absurd you know quest. You know, It's kind of based – or at least he, he blames it being based on, on losing a sister. Um, and I wanted to have little hints – I think unintentional, but I wanted this of loss and grief and you know melancholy at the end of the day. Because um, as funny as it is, there are this you know the the character is basically a hypochondriac. He the the book is being told he's mostly on a stretcher. He thinks he's dying. Death is kind of surrounding them by, at all angles. So I wanted there to be that sense of of darkness. You know, I wanted to be funny and and dark, but also kind of a, almost in a Bernhardt way, where you're kind of grimacing like I'm laughing, but this is dark. You know, yeah.
0: Chad posted open letter. Um, he he writes about your or tries to parse your comic timing with with syntax with looking sure. at your long sentences that end in these surprising reversal punchlines. Right. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about syntax. Sure. But a particular th- uh, aspect of syntax where you you really um, make the reader aware of what filters of consciousness we're having to read through to get okay. the story. So, but before we do, I'm hoping you're going to read one last section. Of course. Us, which is an example of this and then yeah, I, we can talk about it. So, it's on on page 50. Perfect.
1: Okay. As Jacob spoke, a ringlet of light would descend above his head, and though I never mentioned it, I saw it countless times, no matter if the day was bleak and beclouded, those obstinate days of gray so copious in Stuttgart, and though there appeared no scientific reason for the halo to exist, throbbing and trembling like a star, it was perhaps a reminder of why I fell in love with the immensity of this great man, sitting at his feet, speechless and astounded, while his thoughts lifted and coiled like rings of smoke, as he raved about a new melancholy that would one day spread across the globe, a novel melancholy that would have the old melancholy and all its bleak associations. This new melancholy, he said, and I wrote, would transform the lives of every human being and slowly, as the recognition of this melancholy grew, he said, and I wrote, it would smash the bulwarks, keeping us from our superior thoughts. The melancholy that should be ours, he said, and I wrote, but we haven't yet earned. And Jacob would scratch his balding skull and the play of light, the smell of bitter coffee, the entire ambiance was so enthralling. For I was just a few years into adulthood, younger than my year suggested, and observing Jacob, beautiful Jacob, giving dictation or performing Buddhist, his meditations or drawing up plans and notes and articles was supremely touching and it was impossible not to revere jacob and worship jacob and with weight with bated breath and deference to jacob as they entered his study for jacob was always rapturous and methodical always ecstatic about his masterwork because in a sense thinking about melancholy studying melancholy writing about melancholy made jacob delirious with joy All existence is suffering, he'd say, reciting the first of the Four Noble Truths, claiming this was his favorite sentence in all the world, the truest sentence in all the world, the most luminous sentence in all the world. Existence is suffering, he'd say, merely to be born is to invite suffering.
0: So it feels to me like there are a couple functions to these riffs that erupt here and there in the text where we get these rapid successions of he said, I wrote, or some variation of that. It definitely adds to the comedy it adds a certain syntactical music. Yes. Um, and to the absurdity of these manic men and their philosophies, he said, and I wrote. But it also situates us in a different relationship as readers to the text. I think of Yuri Herrera, who uses um Spanish words that are sometimes are archaic with Arabic influence. So a Spanish reader would recognize the word as Spanish, but wouldn't necessarily understand what the word is or Christina Rivera Garza and the Tiger Syndrome, where the detective and the translator that the detective hires, they speak to each other in a language that neither one of them is has as their first language. So on top of the translation that the translator is doing for the detective, they're speaking and having to convey their feelings through both of their second languages. Yes. So while all these approaches are super different, those aren't really those are very different reading experiences than reading Reinhardt's garden. I think what they have in common is they sort of foreground the madeness of the text and the language. Yeah. Um, when we hear, he said, I wrote yeah. over and over again, <laughs> we're also aware that the quote unquote truth is being filtered through multiple consciousness. And it seems like it's the opposite of trying to create the fictive spell. So maybe this returns also to like your influences at the beginning and the pressures of whether it be corporate capitalism or MFAs. But instead of creating the fictive spell, it, these these other writers I mentioned in you draw attention to the words. Yes. And to the written, the translational aspect of words. Yeah. Um, I guess this is a long-winded way of asking you about that yes. intention of drawing attention to the mechanics of the text. Yes.
1: Well, I think, I think you're, you're, you're such a, a brilliant reader really, because you're seeing something that I, I dot, I didn't consciously think, well, this is going to show that the narrator is, is translating something to remind the reader that it's not maybe the complete truth that it's being written. And that wasn't, I did it for the aspect of the cadence of the repetition and of the comic timing. Those were the things I was thinking of, but The fact that what you said, and I agree, it kind of makes the reader. It reminds the reader, this isn't really being said; it's being written as it's being said, and you're getting it kind of second or third hand, uh, is fantastic. And that that wasn't an intention. And luckily, I do think that works. And thank you. Um, But no, I really did it for the syntax and for the you know, and to remind the reader, you know, this is being dictated. That you know, look, they're in the room in the castle, and this is this is what's happening as he says this.
0: Well understand. I'm gonna I'm gonna argue with you a little bit. Please because I feel like it might it's it feels also like a theme yes. in the book. Like that maybe I don't know if it's an obsession, may not be intentional, but you know, we can look at this as a book being about melancholy, maybe, maybe not. Uh-huh. A book that is a love letter to literature. Sure. A book that is interrogating the hubris of self important men. But it also feels like it's a book about the translational aspects of communication, which calls into question how can we ever really know if we're communicating at all? Yeah. So examples. <laughs> Yekov loves the books of Emiliano Gomez-Karasquia, books that are all about joy and happiness. <laughs> and this topic is so absurd on its face to Yekov that someone would write earnestly about joy and happiness that he is convinced without a doubt that Karasquia, his hero, is actually intending the opposite and has written a sort of coded uh, oeuvre of, of joy. Yes. Of, not joy, of melancholy. Yes. Of melancholy. And that his translator, Elsa, is to blame, actually, for misconstruing his intentions, right? So similarly, in the jungle, in search of Karaskia, which is where the story opens, yeah. um, they have hired a translator, Javier, who is completely useless, yeah. either not understanding any of the languages or just bad at translating anything meaningful from them. And Yaakov's huge project itself is being written in an invented language that only him and his dead twin sister ever spoke to each other. So we have doubts as a reader whether this project actually even exists. Yeah. There's questions of whether this great genius that our narrator is following and thus we're following is actually writing anything. Right. But if he is, he's. if he dies, it seems pretty unclear that our narrator are our, our hopeful Max broad right. will be able to bring it to the world yes, that may not be intentional, but it seems like it is a through line of interest of yours yes
1: when uh, when I think of what the book is about you're you 're the first person to really wh- what I think it 's about because i didn 't really know when I was writing it, and I think a lot of times that's that 's the beauty of it you 're doing something you um i don 't didn 't have an agenda i don 't think a lot of you know fiction writers should have an agenda. Um, I was just telling the story, but when I look back, I look at it as people not being able to communicate, and it's it's those examples you just said, which really was just for the plot and the story. It was kind of unconscious, and also one other example at the end when he finds maybe Karaskia, he's writing weird stuff on a stone. You don't know what language it is. I'm like hieroglyphs. Um, there's all those examples of people misreading each other, misreading each other's written word or the spoken word yeah yeah and I think that's really one of the the main or the main idea of the book is uh people not communicating,
0: yeah yeah, and it also reminded me just as I don't know if this was an influence, but I think of the um menacing translators in Calvino, like Calvino always has these translators who are doubting or, yes. who are doubted yeah or who are translating things wrong right and there's a sort of an uh animosity between the writer and the translator sure
1: sure and i actually i'm very guilty of really i've only read uh i think uh invisible
0: cities oh really
1: i've not read a lot of calvino he's one of these writers yeah. that i need to i mean because people say well mark you'd love and i I know if i on would a
0: night of winter's traveler that's the one that's the one that has a really great translator okay, good aspect to it okay but he also has like um the castle this is not one of his better books but right the castle of cross destinies uh-huh it's like the setup is these travelers who don't know each other all arrive at this castle, uh-huh. and the rules at the castle are that you can't speak when you're there. Right. You have to pl- place a tarot card down on the table to express what's happened on your journey up until now, but it has to be in relationship to whatever other cards others have placed at the table before you. Oh, wow. And so everyone's at the meal and they have to figure out how to like tell their story. Right. So it's all translation. Sure. Really. Yeah. Um, I don't think the book fully works, but right. I love the, the, the Conceit for the yeah book. the
1: idea yeah, and and what you were saying is is so it 's that, and it 's also about people not being able to communicate and it 's also kind of a love letter, I mean to literature, but also a love letter to translation i mean it 's this idea that um in a way and i 've said this before that the the translators are're they the key holders, you know um if you loved two six 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 if you loved uh, Clarice Lispector, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you have a translator to think, you know, and so uh, I thank them by having one tied to a chair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's that's me tipping my hat to the translators. Right. But it really is a love letter to um, to language and how it can be misconstrued and it can become the thing that you want it to to be used, hopefully for good, but also as a weapon.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I love that because we have literal translators. Sure, we have Jacob's mistranslation of Karaskia. Right. Then we have our narrator's translation of of both Jacob's intelligence and his own words, because he's sure. writing them down. Right. So, and then we have you.
1: Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then whatever gibberish language he, uh, Jacob invented with his sister. Right. Yes. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> so, so, in your, your review of a book by Cesar Ira, you say, Ira isn't as concerned with starting and stopping as he is with going. Yes. A reader can feel this momentum in any number of his books, the ecstatic urge to move forward at any cost. Of course, as any writer is happy to tell you, this is a surefire prescription for writing yourself into a corner. Where are the plans, we ask? Where is the plot structure? And there, once more, is Ira smirking, telling us not to worry. He'll find a way out. This description of forward momentum, that feels like an attribute. I don't know if you're in the corner smirking. I don't know that's true. Other than that, it feels like an attribute of this book. There is a sense of... um, of it hurtling forward. And as you mentioned in this interview and in others, you don't organize a right. uh, storyboard, right. s- no schematics. And you've, and you've talked, and I, I'm hesitant to say this because you're going to alienate all of our listeners, but you've <laughs> talked about how this was a very easy book to write. That you saw what you wanted and you sprinted after it. Yeah. Maybe to to get our listeners back, sure. From cursing your name of about course. how easy the book was, you'll tell us your secret, yeah. <laughs> of how you how you wrote it, right? But tell us about the momentum of the book and the momentum of writing the book, yeah. And then maybe you can dovetail that with some of the ways in in which you write as a writer, of course, that don't involve. Um, Schematics or knowing where you're going.
1: Yes. So, um, and I think I've said it's it was really really easy to write, and it was also really really hard, and those two somehow way coexisted. So I wrote it in a really short span of time. I mean, less than a year, like maybe eight months. And I went back and edited, but I wrote it not knowing exactly where I was going. I wrote it chronologically, how you read it, how the reader reads it, and I would go back and tinker and edit as I went along, but I really tried to move forward, um, because I think a thing that gets writers stuck a lot is to look back at what they've written and go well let me edit what I'm doing kind of in the fear of wanting to go forward into the unknown when you you know you need to go forward or you can't finish um so so there there is that aspect and also while I'm writing um, and I don't mean this like I'm an artist and all this, but my antennas are up. So in my unconscious, I'm thinking about the book all the time. If I'm ringing up a customer at the bookstore, if I'm doing something, um, I may pick up a book on history and say, oh, this would really – so my antennas are always out. I'm always kind of thinking about the book. I'm, it's kind of like this unconscious buzz. So I'm trying to pick up things as I'm living my life. So even though I might not be sitting writing at the time, I'm still spending time writing the book in my – kind of in my mind. Um, and then, of course, I'm always writing notes. Not romantic. Been in my phone, maybe in bed at night, and then emailing myself the notes, and then using them the next day to kind of work out what I'm doing. So I don't know exactly where the book is going. When I wrote this, I didn't know exactly where it was going, um, but I had this faith that I would get there. I would get to where I was trying to go. Um, And I I think you know when you read it that it's it's there's only really one or two ways it's going to end, you know. So I don't really storyboard, but I have have, I've I've large swathes of ideas of where the book is going to go and things I want to make sure I include, yeah. if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And what about, so we talked so much about influence. Do yeah. you feel like you read certain things while you're writing things yes. with momentum, or do you feel like you, you need to avoid other voices while you're writing simply to, to establish your own right music
1: that is a great question so and and to answer a little bit more about the question before and then i'll answer that one another thing to do so that the readers and, and writers don't get mad or upset at me is that the the reason this kind of came easily is because i wrote like three or four really bad novels before it and put them in the trunk and so oh, like you well, have to feel a lot to, to yeah. you know well tell us
0: tell, that'll help yeah so tell us yes. about that period a little bit sure tell so, us about the both the length and the and the the struggles of course, leading up to this this burst of of successful aesthetic resolution. Oh, thank you. So so I wrote a book um, while I was teaching high school or it took about three or four years on and off to
1: try and write this book. Um, it takes place in Mexico and it's kind of uh, about this of uh, this famous fighting rooster, this fighting cock. It's about the world of cockfighting, very fictional. And you're following this this fictional Winning – he's the most uh, victorious rooster in Latin America and there's attempts on his life. There's actually doppelgangers so people kill the wrong chicken. He's protected. Um, and so – and that's kind of it. And I finished it and I kind of liked it. I shopped it around. When I say I kind of liked it, it was – it had great parts but it was uneven. And um, and one way I kind of saw that with this is that um, as wordy as Reinhardt's Garden is, there's very little fat. If, if, um, if um, it doesn't move the story forward, I would kind of take it out. I would take it out. So – so I I failed. I did that. And then in my twenties I wrote two novels that are not good at all. And they're in my trunk or they're on like one of those hard you know, old school like floppy hard drives or, you know, floppy disks. And um and that's the stuff you have to do to be able to make this, I guess, kinda of seem easy. So there's a lot of uh of sweat and a lot of failure and, and that's part of you're gonna fail more, I think, than you succeed. Yeah. Um so that's part of it. And then um the, the second question you had was
0: um, Around reading, reading, um, and whether you yes. avoid or or seek out certain things while you're writing. Yeah,
1: what happens is that um, I do both. So I might start to read a book that's maybe got a style I love, like Thomas Bernhard, for example, or maybe Roberto Bolaño, or or someone like that. And I don't get very far because then my mind is kind of triggered, or I get that buzz, and then I go and I write. So. I was telling this to a fiction workshop I was teaching is sometimes I can write three or four pages of of a work of a book I'm writing because I read a word, just a word, and I'm like, oh, that's a great word. And that triggers this kind of avalanche of, of words for me. So sometimes I'm reading something in the cadence or the word, just a word from a writer, a style that I like um, triggers me. And then I have to close the book and go and do something else, my own writing. But in general, when I'm writing, I try and read things that are not quite as similar, you know, because yeah. I don't want to emulate or copy. However, if I want to be inspired or I'm kind of having writer's block, I think the best cure is to read. Just read. Other books will inspire you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of that, yes. Now is the time to put on your literary tastemaker hat okay. <laughs> on behalf of our audience. Yes. Um, tell us about some books that are not, not contemporary that are perhaps overlooked. Sure. If you can. Yes. And also some recent books or upcoming books that you particularly can't shake that, that you loved or or, um, that you'd like to share with us? Yes.
1: Okay. So, um, Oh, a mentor friend of mine, uh, David uh, Sudar uh, from Florida, he's, he's, he, was, he is a good friend of mine, um, but you know, I haven't seen him in years because I've moved away. I live in Texas. Um, he introduced me to – besides Thomas Bernhardt, a lot of good writers. There's a French writer who I think was really popular maybe in the 90s and he's just not talked about. It, maybe you've read him. Uh, Michel Tournier. Mm-mm. Okay, so he his books I think are, they come out by Harvard. They're kind of hard to find out. Michel Tournier wrote um, a book about twins called *Gemini*. It's fiction. It's really good. He wrote a book called *The Ogre*, which is incredible. It almost feels a little bit like. Um, like Sebald a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ogre I think is a masterpiece. And uh, I was able to get two or three for the bookstore and, and then they sold and it was hard to get more. But I think Harvard Books puts them out. Um, Michelle Tournier is fantastic and I don't think he's celebrated enough in, 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 in English. Um, trying to think what else obscure. I think more contemporary that she is being celebrated but she's absolutely rocked my world is um, Charco Press puts out that Argentine writer Ariana Horowitz. Mm-hmm. Um, And she lives in France, and she wrote a book that was – I mean she gets a claim. It was shortlisted for the booker um, Die My Love. She has a second book that's been out in England but will come out here soon called Feeble-Minded, and there's a third. And it's a thematic trilogy, so you don't have to read them. They don't – they talk to each other in theme, but you can read them independently. Um, I don't know the title of the third one, but she – I think is extraordinary. Her her writing, I don't know if you've read her, is really dense. It's very visceral. It's very violent in a way, mostly violent emotions. But it's really about women and uh, and madness. And they're very slim. They're um, sometimes just over 100 pages, beautifully translated. And I feel embarrassed. I'm forgetting the translator's names. I think one of them is one of the co-publishers uh, of Charco Press. Um, Ariane Horowitz is just wonderful. Really, really. And wow. I think she's going to become a big, big deal. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And... You have another book coming out from Coffee House. Right? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are you able to talk to us a
1: little bit? I about it? I think so. I mean, coffee. They're, I mean, Coffee House is—they're like my dream press. They really are. Like anything that good that happens to me is like gravy because they, I really wanted to get my book published through them, um, and I, I don't think they might have. Failed. It's about art. It's about the art world, and it's about what do you know? Two guys and they're obsessed with a piece of art. What a surprise. But it's about this piece of Renaissance art that they've kind of built their careers on. Um on I don't want to say discovering, but giving it the attention they think it deserves. And the piece of art is called the uh, Saint Sebastian's Abyss. Um and that's also the title of the book. I, I guess tentatively, but I think that's the title. And it's um it's actually told in short chapters, so it is broken up still the same style. The chapters are very unbroken and dense, but they're short mostly. Um, and it's contemporary, and it's about these two men that make their career on a piece of art. And they – kind of the idea of you know who gets to decide what art is and what art isn't.
0: And is it a fake piece of art or a real piece of art?
1: It is. Or is um, that ruining
0: anything? Oh, it's tell?
1: a real piece of art that's hanging up in Lisbon. No, I, I, won't, I won't give that away. Um, but um, but it, it is about art. It's about art movements, and it's about um, – you know who gets to decide if if so no one has studied art in their life they've never gone to a classroom and talked about art and they see a painting and they start to weep um who's to say well your feelings aren't valid why do you get to feel that way yeah. you know which is obviously absurd so
0: and are you are you working on that now or are you working on something after that and that's in I'm the working pipeline. on something
1: at the Zykev's archives at the Horner Institute. So I'm actually working on something new. And I will go back and start to edit uh the, the, the Saint Sebastian's Abyss with Coffee House, but yeah. we're not quite there yet. Um, you know, because publishing's slow. So I will start to edit that probably later this year. Um but in the meantime, the news is good, I guess. I'm just writing because it's coming. I'm yeah. not trying to force it and uh Can you give us
0: five uh adjectives that describe this, this mysterious project in, in uh Oh
1: yes. Absolutely. Five words. Okay. Montaigne, duels, coffee, artist colonies,
0: French literature. All right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's great having you on the show. This has been a really pleasure. I'm honored. I'm I'm a big fan. Thank you, David. We're talking today to Mark Haber about his book, Reinhardt's Garden, from Coffee House Press. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naaman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer powered, non commercial, listener sponsored, full strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at KBOO.fm. For the bonus audio archive, Mark Haber lets us behind the scenes and reads to us from a work in progress. Mark Haber's addition to the archive joins readings by Jenny Ofel, Richard Powers, Marlon James, Laylee Long Soldier, Carmen Maria Machado, E.J. Ko, Sheila Hetty, Forrest Gander, John Keane, Jen bourbon and others. All this can be found at patreon.com slash covers. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who tirelessly helped make this show run as smoothly as it does. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogi in the book division, Jacob Vala and Jeremy Cruz in the art department, Yeshwena Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the unmatchable summer and winter Tin House Writers' Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album Imre Ladbrog a Sapatita Me can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Browning.